sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the role of the U.S. Congress in the ongoing war in Yemen. Also going to be touching on the latest U.S. airstrikes in Syria and going to be discussing the reality of resort towns in Israel. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by David Swanson, an activist, journalist, radio host, executive director of World Beyond War and author of the book Leaving World War II Behind. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And David, uh, you recently published a, a piece on your uh, website entitled Every Single Member of Congress is Willing to Let Yemeni Children Die. Now, that may sound like a kind of bold statement uh, on its face, but I think in truth, uh, if one looks into it even a little bit, it's shown to be sort of plainly true. And uh, I'm wondering uh, why you think this is. And in your piece, you set forth sort of a number of ways that we could even verify whether or not that statement is true. And so why is it, particularly following the campaign promises of Joe Biden, a Democrat, how is it that uh, we continue to see this phenomenon roll on that, you know, seemingly even people who, you know, do speak up about what's happening in Yemen uh, don't seem to really be uh, pressing the issue? Well, as you and most of your listeners know, uh, the U.S. Constitution uh, was not supposed to let presidents start uh, or wage wars. Uh, and come 1973, the Congress passed a law called the War Powers Resolution that uh, in many ways weakened that absolute standard, but uh, actually created a means uh, by which a single member of either House of Congress could force a vote, a debate and a vote on whether to end a war that a president has unconstitutionally started and is in the middle of waging. Uh, and, uh, you know, there used to be Congress members. There used to be a guy who's still a friend of many of ours named Dennis Kucinich uh, and others who would do this, who would force a vote, a debate and a vote and see who in the House is for or against continuing this outrageous, murderous, illegal war. Uh, and never once uh, did that vote pass until Donald Trump was in the White House. Uh, and then you had both houses of Congress, uh, largely partisan manner, Democrat, Democratic Party controlled House and Senate, pass, uh, repeatedly pass uh, a resolution to end U.S. participation in the war on Yemen, knowing full well that Donald Trump had promised to veto it, which he did. Uh, and they made passionate speeches, the moral need, the urgency that the children who are going to starve to death, etc. And this was three years ago. Right. Then you have a Democrat come into the White House in Joe Biden and you think, my God, day one, why not pass it again uh, without the Trump veto? Uh, and here we are over a year and a half later uh, and they have a bill. They have a resolution introduced in both houses with more co-sponsors than they ever had last time when they passed it in both houses. Uh, no reason whatsoever to think they couldn't pass it in both houses. Uh, and it's not coming up for a vote. Uh, and one thing that means is that, you know, Nancy Pelosi and the so-called leadership, Chuck Schumer, they don't want it to. But it also means that not a single one 
of those 535 people in the House or Senate wants to force a vote, uh, which they can do in a matter of 18 days under under law. Uh, so that was that that, you know, there are peace groups that are pushing for the leadership to make it happen. Uh, but there's nobody denouncing the fact that a single member could make it happen. Uh, and this is what I find a little bit uh, outrageous. And, and I've, I've been given some bogus excuses since I wrote this article from some insider-ish types that I can tell you. But uh, th- this is what I'm outraged about. Yeah, and please do. What is some of the reasoning you've been hearing? Uh, I, I guess not more or less three excuses I've been given. Uh, one is that it's better to have a joint resolution than a concurrent resolution. Uh, a concurrent resolution being something that doesn't go to the president for a signature that can be uh, that a single member of a single house can force a vote on. Uh, a joint resolution requiring introduction in both houses and it goes to the president and so forth. Uh, one problem with this is that a con- Current resolution is a damn serious thing that could immediately force a subsequent vote on a joint resolution, and there's no reason in the world not to do it. Uh, the other problem with this is they've got a bill in both houses with a bunch of co-sponsors in both houses. They get one member from each house. Voila, they've got a joint resolution. Uh, so I consider this a nonsense excuse. The second excuse uh, is, you know, rather embarrassing uh, to the Democratic Party. Uh, it is that Nancy Pelosi supposedly tried to decree that you couldn't force votes on ending wars during COVID. Uh, however, uh, the, the chairman of the Rules Committee, Jim McGovern, said, to hell with that, I'm not abiding by that. Uh, so apparently this is not in effect, according to the chairman of the Rules Committee in the House. But, but in addition, when the Republicans did this in December 2019 and forbid any forcing of votes in the House until the next year, that is some weeks later, January 2020, uh, the, the Democrats in Washington, D.C., were outraged and considered it illegal and a scandal and a shame and and a travesty. (laughs) So I consider this uh, to be no good excuse number two. And and the third one uh, is that it's better to be threatening to end the war than to actually end a war. Uh, The reasoning being that uh, that with uh, Saudi Arabia supposedly watching and counting the co-sponsors, they're worried. And so they won't blow up any school buses or elementary schools because they know that the next day Congress would, uh, would end U.S. participation in the war. Whereas if you go ahead and vote to end war, U.S. participation in the war, it might fail. Somehow somebody might lose their spine and vote no. Well, you know, this is a loser's game. This is, you know, they've got the votes if they want them. Uh, you know, they can have the, they can pass the thing today if they want to. Uh, the, you know, the, the members of both parties largely obey their so-called leadership. If Nancy Pelosi wants to have the vote and pass it, uh, she can do that today. Uh, there's absolutely no reason uh, for one person not to force the vote. And the reason why they should 
is that even with the truce in place, it hasn't opened up the roads. It hasn't opened up the ports. It hasn't allowed children and and adults to uh, to travel to where they need medical care. Uh, it's leaving millions of people facing starvation and disease in one of the very worst places on Earth. And the only reason we can't say it's the worst place on Earth is because Afghanistan has become so horrible uh, with billions of dollars uh, seized by the U.S. government. Yeah, definitely. And you know what you're saying, uh, uh, David, it reminds me of another point that you, you raise in your piece that I think is important. And that's the fact that if the U.S. participation in the war on Yemen ends, then the war itself would effectively end. Because even though th- this conflict is portrayed to the world as being led by Saudi Arabia, I mean, that leadership is directly supported by uh, uh, the U.S. military and uh, U.S. weapons. And so it seems that even the sort of uh, very basic way that the war in Yemen itself has been um, settled, if you will, in the consciousness of the American people, and I'm sure many more folks around the world, I mean, that in and of itself seems to present its own sort of level of difficulty when trying to sort of show uh, the reality of not only what's happening there, but uh, how Washington plays right into it. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, there's plenty of blame for Saudi Arabia and the other allies, but uh, experts have maintained for years now that this war would effectively uh, end without the U.S. military and the U.S. government, Uh, not only because uh, under Trump and under Biden and with the approval of various Congresses, uh, the U.S. has continued shipping massive piles of weapons uh, to Saudi Arabia to make a buck, uh, but also because the U.S. military uh, is key to making those weapons keep working, uh, to the satellites needed to target, to identification of targets, to to making the whole machinery work. Uh, I mean, Saudi Arabia's military is effectively a branch of the U.S. military with some European weapons thrown in, uh, with an office paid for for by Saudi Arabia permanently in Saudi Arabia for the selling of more U.S. weapons to Saudi Arabia. Uh, so, you know, the, Saudi Arabia could go search for other places to buy weapons. Saudi Arabia could figure out other styles of warfare. Uh, but Saudi Arabia, is, the, the reason Saudi Arabia is very nervous uh, is, is, and doesn't want the United States Congress to act uh, is, in fact, because it is incredibly dependent on the U.S. media. The reason I want the U.S. Congress to act is not just to save millions of lives immediately in Yemen, uh, but also to set the precedent that, you know, after all these years, since 1973, you can't actually use this law. You can actually end a war. Let's end two or three more now. Yeah, definitely. And almost I can't help but feel like that kind of domino effect that it could have on other wars may be part of the calculus while we don't see more pushback on this issue. And I want to swing back to something that you touched on a minute ago, uh, David, and it's this really nasty habit that the Democrats have of, uh, uh, you know, uh, being of taking uh, fundamentally a kind of anti-war stance when there is a, a Republican president uh, knowing that whatever they're putting forth likely won't 
won't get very far. But we don't see that kind of uh, uh, passion when there is a Democrat that's in office. And uh, you note this uh, quote from uh, Mark Pecan, a Democrat of Wisconsin. I believe this is one from 2019, where he said, quote, as the Saudi-led coalition continues to use famine as a weapon of war, starving millions of innocent Yemenis to near death, the United States is actively participating in the regime's military campaign, providing targeting and logistical assistance for Saudi airstrikes. For far too long, Congress has refused to carry out its constitutional responsibility to make decisions regarding military engagement. We can no longer stay silent on matters of war and peace. Now, that almost sounds like the kind of a speech you would hear at a anti-war rally that you might see, you know, David Swanson at, for instance. But it, it seems to me that Pecan and others who made a, a similar statements um, sort of knew that uh, the Trump White House would never let anything like this pass. And yet, when one of their own uh, comes into the White House, particularly someone like Joe Biden, who we were told was going to be our savior from the ravages of Trumpism, well, then, you know, that roar sort of turns into a grumble, if not complete silence. Oh, there's no question. Uh, and it's not just Congress members. It's the people that follow them and obey them as well. Um, as anybody knows who, like me, sends messages out to huge email lists, it, when a Republican is in the White House and you say something for peace and against war, you get all kinds of outrage, uh, insults and curse words coming back at you from Republicans. And when a Democrat is in the White House, you get all sorts of people who pretended to be anti-war when a Republican was there emailing you nasty messages. How dare you be against war when a Democrat is in the White House? And this is, of course, the attitude taken by Congress members as well as ordinary people. Uh, and uh, and in part, it's a cynical sort of scam uh, in the way that, you know, the legislature, the Democrats in the legislature in California will pass single-payer health care anytime the governor is Republican and going to veto it and then just drop it entirely and go silent whenever the governor is a Democrat uh, because they don't actually want to do things. They just want to act as if they're trying to do things. Um, and, and, you know, this is a problem for activist groups who set up headquarters in Washington, D.C. and get funding from all the right places uh, and understand their mission as doing what Nancy Pelosi wants them to do, not bringing from the public demands to the elected officials but bringing demands from the elected officials to the elected officials. You know, this is this is a problem that's been going on for decades now. This is like when the when the government uh, labor unions uh, ask me and so on, we're traveling around the country telling everyone to hold rallies for single payer health care and, and forbidding. Uh, sorry for for a uh, for a public option and forbidding anyone to say the words single payer, not because this was what people wanted or what their own members wanted, but because this was what the leadership of the Democratic Party had told them to pretend to want. Uh, it's a real perversion of, of activism. It's a charade. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, what what you're describing in terms of the dynamics of uh, uh, the Democrats and Republicans, I think this is precisely why there are some people that will say that there's only one party in the United States, and that's the war party. And what that speaks to is this issue that uh, uh, that war 
uh, and sort of the ongoing destruction uh, that it brings is really a bipartisan issue. I mean, that's one thing that uh, Democrats and Republicans, you can just about guarantee that they will be in lockstep on. And so, I mean, what that says to me, David, is that the anti-war movement in this country, especially in the United States, from whence uh, so much of this uh, emanates, um, uh, the anti-war movement then has to uh, uh, sort of recognize this in a way and then use that as how we consider how to organize and move forward on how to really fight uh, the war party on uh, a number of levels, as it's clear that, you know, despite the U.S.'s pronouncements about uh, human rights and how much it cares about, you know, children and things like this, that they obviously are completely unconcerned about the real human toll that these conflicts in Yemen and around the world uh, uh, really bring about. And as such, the real peace elements in this country, of which there seems to be none of the U.S. government, have to make their voice heard. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree, or I almost agree. I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm reluctant to to say the two parties are exactly identical because it's so easily disproven. Uh, but uh, the two parties mostly do war making. This is mostly what the United States government does. It's a war machine with some side offices. Uh, and on war, both parties are horrendous. And sometimes one is a little bit worse, and sometimes the other is a little bit worse, or they're worse in different ways. But essentially. They're in lockstep agreement on more war and lots of war. And when it comes to risking nuclear apocalypse, they're both gung ho for exacerbating the problem. Uh, when it comes to climate, you know, they're <laughs> the one party is slightly better, wants to slow down the disaster a teeny bit more than the other one does. And when it comes to other issues that are relatively minor but still vitally important to lots of people, there are differences between the two parties. Uh, the, the thing is, we don't have a peace party, and we don't even have a single peace member of Congress. Uh, when it comes to anyone willing to force a debate uh, and try to end a war or, or willing to try to organize no votes on, on massive military spending, there, there's not a single member left. It's, a, it's an extinct species. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, in our last minute or so, David, I mean, uh, we're talking about the, the human toll of this war in Yemen. And I was hoping you could say something about sort of how uh, uh, how this humanitarian crisis has been visited upon the people of, of Yemen and how the U.S. involvement kind of factors into that. Yeah, well, this is uh, a country that is one of the poorest uh, in the world that has seen uh, outrage from outside its borders uh, directed by the U.S. military since President Obama's so-called successful drone war, uh, which predictably became another kind of war, uh, and has seen a blockade uh, of food and supplies, uh, and has seen some of the worst disease epidemics in the history of the world, the worst cholera epidemic in the history of the world, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, and so it's the violence combined with uh, the lack of food, the lack of supplies, the lack of medicine, uh, and on top of that, the COVID pandemic, and on top of that, more and more uh, international aid, actual humanitarian aid, not weapons called aid, is going to Ukraine uh, and is not going to places like Yemen and Syria and Afghanistan because Ukraine is all over the news. And, and I want more, not less, aid going to the people of Ukraine. But I also want it going to the people of Yemen and Afghanistan and Syria and places where, frankly, a lot more people have died and suffered thus far. Uh, and a lot more people are risking starvation and disease uh, than, in, than in Ukraine.
Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, David, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the latest U.S. airstrikes in Syria. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Richard Becker, author of Palestine, Israel, and the U.S. Empire. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And Richard, recently uh, the U.S. military conducted airstrikes against certain targets in Syria. Uh, Not long after that, uh, CENTCOM, which is the Middle East command of the Pentagon, if you will, released video footage of the attack saying, quote, we have a total spectrum of capability to mitigate threats across the region, almost as if to to brag about uh, what it is they've done here. And so uh, in, in understanding this, Richard, my first question is really two-part. Number one, what is Washington saying is their justification for these airstrikes? And from your perspective, what is the reality of what's happening here? Well, they they claim that the, carrying out these strikes, uh, kind of, and fairly massive strikes, um, using uh, A64, A-64, what they call Apache, I put that in quotes, attack helicopters, AC-130 gunships, we can fire uh, machine gun fire at like 2,000 rounds a minute, I believe, and M-777 artillery. So this is like a huge attack that are are taking place. And they say it's because there were were, uh, attacks by some militia in Syria against uh, two U.S. bases. And it's it's kind of ironic that uh, they call these bases Mission Support Site Conoco and Mission Support Site Green Village. Well, why would they call it Conoco? Uh, they've named their base after an oil company. Uh, well, that's uh, actually completely appropriate because what the U.S. is doing there in that part of Syria, which is the part of Syria that has oil, Syria isn't a big oil-producing country, but it has oil that can meet its own domestic needs, but the U.S. has been uh, stealing the oil uh, and sending it into Iraq. Uh, they claim, openly claim, that, that they've taken 86 tankers, uh, tanker trucks, and they have continuing uh, this continuing flow of, uh, of trucks that are taking oil, uh, Syria's oil, out of Syria uh, for someone else's benefit. And so, you know, they, the uh, U.S. commanders... Uh, Well, one of them said that we will take all necessary measures to defend our people. Well, the the U.S. soldiers who are there are there illegally. The theft of uh, of Syria's oil is illegal. This is all an illegal operation. And yet they pose, the Pentagon poses as defenders of, you know, uh, of uh, U.S. soldiers. Uh, But in reality, what they're talking about is, uh, really uh, imperialist intervention. 
Yeah, and you actually touched on a little bit of what my next question was going to be, Richard, and that's, you know, why are U.S. troops even in Syria? I mean, is it purely for uh, uh, the oil or, or are there other sort of interests that are there as well? I mean, certainly my impression is that the Syrian government does not want them there. And so uh, how are they operating in uh, uh, inside Syria, speaking of U.S. troops um, at this time? And just what is the reason? Well, it is completely illegal. Um the the Syrian government, which was under attack from all sides, I mean, it, it's just unbelievable in, in a certain way that the Syrian government survived the war against Syria that started in uh, 2011. Of course, it didn't all start then, but that's when the major military action started. And you had a situation where Turkey, Saudi Arabia, the European Union, the United States, um, uh, all and, and others were coming in to try to overthrow the government and were supporting these very reactionary forces inside Syria uh, that were carrying out the war on the ground. Um, so that started in 2011. Now we're in 2022. And, the, uh, and, and so this has been going on. And the U.S. troops moved in sometimes after that. But they moved into uh, the northeastern part of Syria, and they are allied with something called the Syrian Defense Forces, which is led by uh, Kurdish forces inside of Syria, who and and they basically carved out a, a zone of of Syria that is not under government control, and that's where the U.S. is, uh, along with the forces that are called the Syrian Defense Forces. Yeah, and so since this attack was illegal, since the presence of U.S. troops in Syria is illegal, and since the Syrian government under Bashar al-Assad does not want them there, I mean, you know, I'm not even really sure how to ask this, but I mean, how is it that they're able to actually be there? I mean, is it just sort of the sheer um, military, you know, political and economic might of the United States that makes this possible? It's just, it just feels like if this were, you know, uh, any number of other situations that, that we could conjure up, whether a real or imagine that this certain thing uh, wouldn't be allowed, but yet somehow Washington is able to do this. And I mean, how is that, Richard? Yeah, I mean, it is, it is, as you suggest, amazing. <laughs> it's an amazing situation. And that the, um, the Pentagon and uh, the White House take it upon themselves. Take, they arrogate to themselves the, the right to uh, intervene anywhere in the world to send their troops in anywhere in the world. And they, they've done it here. The only places that they don't, they aren't able to do that is when it's countries that are strong enough uh, to be able to fend off the U.S. and, and to make it clear that, that you know, there, that would mean war uh, to come into their country. Of course, it does mean war, but it's a one-sided war at this point. That in that part of Syria, uh, the U.S. forces are, are dominant, uh, together with their uh, their allies in the Syrian Defense Forces, and you know, and, and Syria is still divided up um, because of this the intervention from outside. The Turkey is supporting in the northwest part of Syria and Idlib province uh, the forces there, which are uh, super reactionary forces of Al Qaeda and ISIS. But the U.S. is supporting uh, mainly supporting the Syrian Defense Forces, uh, which I described before. Uh, but the, the, the arrogation of that right, so-called right, to intervene anywhere, 
and then to claim we're taking all necessary steps to defend our people. The presentation is made that really it's the U.S. that's under attack, but it's not the U.S. that's under attack. It's the, it's the U.S. forces that are illegally in Syria as they are illegally in, uh, still illegally in Iraq. Yeah, and speaking of uh, sort of other countries in the region, Richard, I think that um, there's a broader context to this that is often missed by a lot of people in the U.S. and the West, and I don't think that's um, a coincidence. And that's the fact of how Syria factors in into a broader project of U.S. imperialism in the Middle East in general, and how over the years, uh, uh, Washington has very intentionally and methodically sort of um, destabilized and sought to disrupt uh, different countries within the region to bring them uh, uh, under their control. And Syria has been on uh, the menu for a long time. And so do you see, you know, these latest airstrikes as part and parcel of this uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, deeper attempt at uh, regime change in Syria? As, as as part of an even larger effort to deepen the U.S.'s uh, uh, control over the Middle East? Well, if you look at the map, <clears throat> you can see that Syria is a central country in the, the region uh, of the Middle East. So it borders, it has a long border with Turkey, has a long border with Iraq, it has a border with, uh, a very significant border with Lebanon, with Israel, and with Jordan. So it's right in the center of the Middle East. And uh, for, for that reason, uh, the U.S. and Israel both uh, have been working, and Israel just launched a huge attack on, uh, and did a great deal of damage in Syria two days ago on the 28th. Uh, but they want to weaken Syria, and one way to weaken Syria is to divide it. So... While the government has taken back most of the country, that and much of it had been uh, had been lost to various militias and different uh, foreign-backed forces, uh, it still is divided. So the the, the country is effectively uh, partitioned, as I said, with the Idlib province in the northwest, which is a strategic bridge, uh, strategic area, and the area in the northeast that's controlled by the U.S.-backed Syrian Democratic Forces, it's an effective partition of Syria. And that's one way to, you know, a very effective way to weaken it. And I think that the U.S. forces are there so that they're part of this, uh, they're one of the forces that's part of the division of Syria that's taking place now. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think it's also important to remember that um, what we're discussing is not merely a conflict between two governments. There's a very serious human toll that happens as a result of these airstrikes and uh, uh, this seemingly endless war that we see all across the region that isn't felt by, you know, Joe Biden or whoever may be uh, uh, inhabiting the White House at that moment. It isn't felt by uh, the Congress of millionaires here in the United States. It's the people of Syria and also uh, the people in the U.S 
military who I think to a considerable extent are working class people who, you know, while lionize and valorize in the consciousness of uh, uh, the American people are basically sent off to die for the interest of uh, the U.S. ruling class and for the war profiteers. And I just feel like that aspects of things get sort of uh, uh, papered over or glossed over a lot of times when we uh, discuss this, Richard. And I think it's part and parcel of why not only is the reality of what U.S. troops are doing in, in Syria covered up, but the impact that it has on the Syrian people is uh, covered up as well. Well, there is no doubt about that. That's that's absolutely accurate statement that, you know, the presentation in the Western media, when there's a focus on the suffering of any people anywhere, it's because that aligns with uh, the propaganda, the the war propaganda of the U.S. And uh, but we hear nothing about virtually nothing about uh, and haven't heard anything for years about the suffering of the Syrian people as a result of the this you know seemingly endless war against their country. Instead, it's presented like kind of the big chessboard, you know, of this country and that country. Uh, but as you suggest, it leaves out what's really happening to the people there. Uh, and, you know, we, we just had, uh, you know, a big struggle in Washington over uh, the soldiers who uh, suffer cancer and other diseases from the burn pits where they destroy, you know, like in Iraq or in Afghanistan or, or in Syria. There's a great deal of destruction of, of equipment and materials uh, much of it's very toxic, and it was big pushback to uh, providing any real aid to the to uh, soldiers, former soldiers who suffer from those. So, you know, the support the troops thing. We sort of thank you for your service and support the troops. Well, they support them until they're done using them, and then it becomes a huge struggle uh, for soldiers. And this goes really back to you know many wars. Uh, but in the Vietnam War, we had hundreds of thousands of veterans who became homeless uh, and who suffered physical and psychological and mental health issues and ended up on the streets. The largest contingent still of people living in the streets, although um, because of the age, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's diminishing, but still huge numbers of the people who are living in the streets in the United States are Vietnam veterans or veterans of other wars. So you have that and you have, I, I, I was in, had the, I had the privilege of going to Iraq a couple of times, I mean to Syria a couple of times. I went to Iraq a couple of times also, but Syria um, in the 1980s and then in 2005. And, you know, there were people who had grievances, you, you know, there were, it wasn't everyone was happy with the government, but people were living normal Lives. There wasn't homelessness in the streets. Uh, people were were able to live. They were able to get education. The education system was very good. They had a national health care system. They had big problems because of drought in their area of agriculture, which, which contributed greatly to the war in 2011 and part of the population rising up against the government. Um, but people were led uh, lives that were, you know, they, they led decent lives. And much of that has been taken away, and very little of it is, has been reported uh, in the Western media. 
Definitely. And as always, you know, Richard, it makes me wonder, you know, how do we as a a U.S. anti-war, anti-imperialist movement um, respond to what we're seeing in Syria, what we're seeing in the Middle East and certainly, you know, in other countries like uh, Iran as well? I I mean, you know, how should we be um, sort of analyzing and understanding uh, uh, what we're seeing in Syria with these ongoing strikes uh, by the, the U.S.? And how should that factor in the kind of organized we do to try to, you know, really fight this imperialism, which, as we've been saying, you know, impacts uh, people on both sides. Well, it's very important for uh, for people to really have an honest analysis of what is going on and the U.S. intervention in Syria, uh, the role of Israel, uh, the U.S. intervention on going in Iraq and more. And uh, and but also to be, to be able to take action when there are uh, crisis moments that take place, uh, as well as uh, you know trying to educate more and more of the population about this. But I would say that the anti-war movement has played an important role a couple of times in the, in Syria and in Iraq uh, and, and in relation to Iran in recent history. In 2013, Obama was ready to go. Uh, everyone was shocked when on that, the day when he held his press conference, which uh, was expected to announce that the U.S. was really going to war, uh, launching an air war, that he backed away because the demonstrations were taking place in the U.S., perhaps even more importantly, uh, by the anti-war movement in other countries, and where uh, a, a motion in Parliament in England was defeated. Uh, to support, uh, you know, an escalation of the war. They were already in there in, in one respect. And then when uh, the uh, Iranian general uh, Soleimani was assassinated by the Trump administration, again, there were demonstrations and the answer coalition played a key role in both of those, both in 2013 in regard to Syria and 20, uh, I believe it was 2019 in regard to uh uh, what happened in Iraq, the assassination of, of Soleimani, uh, and 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 it, I think it prevented. And this was, I think, uh, also a carryover from the Iraq War when there were huge demonstrations. But I think that those were very important instances where there could have been an escalation into even larger wars. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Richard, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the reality of Zionist tourism in Israel. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Miko Pellet, human rights activist and author of The General Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine and Injustice, the story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. Miko, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Good to be with you. 
Absolutely. And it's good to have you on, Miko. And you recently published a very interesting piece for uh, Mint Press News where you talk about uh, the history and really the political context for um, Israeli tourist resorts and places like this really hold towns and areas that were once, of course, uh, populated by Palestinians who were removed as a part of this uh, genocidal um, uh, ethnic cleansing. A program that has been the reality uh, uh, for Palestinians for some time. And uh, it's a pretty wild thing to uh, uh, consider as these uh, seemingly become, you know, havens for uh, European settlers and things like this. And so I was hoping you could sort of break down just, you know, what are the history of uh, some of these places, Miko, and how does it factor into the Zionist project? Well, uh, thanks for having me. Um, the, the reality is that, of course, all of Palestine was brutally taken over throughout 1948 and, and since. And, um, and that brutal takeover was done for a reason. It was taken over um, by what became the State of Israel. And um, uh, a campaign of ethnic cleansing has been, taken, has been going on you know, ever since then for the purpose of colonizing the country with mostly European, but also other, but also Jewish people from other people, from other places. The piece I wrote about, I, I just got back from Palestine two days ago. And I was there for most of August. And uh, one of the things I noticed, so in, in the north, on the northern coast of Palestine, you've got, you've got Haifa, and then you've got a bay, and then you've got Akka. And these are two majorly important uh, Palestinian cities that have a very long and rich history as, as um, both modern history and and, uh, and ancient history, uh, being port cities and great places of commerce and culture and so on. In 1948, they were subjected to a massive campaign of ethnic cleansing. I mean, it was horrifying to see the bombing, the shelling of, of uh, Palestinian uh, neighborhoods, particularly in Haifa, and people running, 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 running down uh, to the to the harbor to, to escape. Um, there's a great, there's a great uh, story, great play by Rafan Kenafani called "The Return to Haifa," which is a must-read for anybody who cares about Palestine. It's also a great piece of literature that describes this. But um, what's interesting is that this beautiful bay, the gorgeous, the gorgeous beaches in in that in that bay, it's the, and you can see you can see both city when you're cities when you're in the bay. And I was visiting there with some with some people, and you see, it's like a Russian resort. It's like a Russian resort. I mean, there's not a single Palestinian, not a single word, not a single sign in Arabic. Um, and that particular part of the country seems to have been inhabited by design, I'm sure, by the government, because they subsidize uh, the housing for the, for, the, uh, for the settlers. And it's like you're in some Russian resort in the Black Sea or, or somewhere, you know, somewhere in Europe. I mean, everybody speaks Russian. There's, nobody even knows or cares that this was Palestine not that long ago. It's really very bizarre. And this is, again, minutes away, a few miles, short miles away from Palestinian neighborhoods, from Palestinian towns, from Palestinian refugee camps. Um, and this entire space, these entire cities, this entire both public and private spaces used to belong to Palestinians. You know, this is something, this is for the reason there's so many millions of Palestinians in refugee camps around the world is because they used to live there and this is theirs. So I just thought it was, I just thought it was so glaring, you know, every morning to see these, I don't know, countless, I don't know how many, the beaches are full of these retired, especially retired kind of age, 
Russian, all speaking Russian, you know, stores with Russian, Russian product, and complete erasure, complete erasure of the past, of, of, of the very, not so distant past, past, you know, of what that country um, used to be. Yeah, and it also makes me wonder, Miko, I mean, what happens if a Palestinian tries to, you know, live in one of these areas or applies to, say, you know, uh, rent an apartment or something in one of these types of towns? I mean, uh, do they face discrimination? Uh, what is that like? There's not a chance in hell that a Palestinian would be uh, would be able to rent, uh, much less buy uh, a property, an apartment. You know, not a chance in hell that a Palestinian could, could, uh, could live there. To rent an apartment, there nobody will rent. Nobody will rent to a Palestinian, and there's no legal repercussions to that kind of racism. So there's no way in the world. And by the way, what I what I described in this particular, it's called the Gulf of Haifa between these two cities, is true throughout the entire country. I mean, it's not unique. All throughout the entire country, from Jerusalem to the very south, the Nakab to the north. I mean, you see Jewish spaces clear of Palestinians. Uh, Jewish-Israeli spaces only where Palestinians cannot dream of renting, or much less, like I said, buying a property or even enjoying the public spaces. I mean, even enjoying the public spaces would be would not be something Palestinians uh, would would think of doing because the racism is so severe in the sense of, you know, what, why are there Arabs here? What are they doing? Are they dangerous? You know, that kind of thing, all the stereotypes. They wouldn't dream of it. It's an incredibly, incredibly powerful thing when you see it. And I think it's important for, you know, people of conscience who care about justice, who care about not just Palestine, but justice in, in general, to realize that this is where Palestine has been going for the last hundred or so years. And if we don't step up, then that's going to be the reality in all of Palestine. It's going to get, we're only going to get worse and worse and worse. Uh, and the push by Israel and the various Zionist organizations around the world to finance it, uh, the push to do this more and more and create this kind of Arab-free Palestine is very, very strong and very, very quick. Definitely. And, you know, uh, within the piece, you give examples of settlements like uh, Kochab Yair and, and others. And this is a part of what's so uh, striking to me, because the, the removal of, of people, of the Palestinian people, doesn't seem to be uh, sufficient for settlers. It has to be a complete sort of uh, a cultural and historical erasure, too, uh, uh, as well. And so that makes me wonder, and I don't know what kind of conversations or observations you were able to make while you were recently in Palestine, Miko, but even from uh, the settlers who do inhabit these places, I mean, what is their consciousness like around um, a Palestinian people, like in the most general sense? Like, is there just any idea of, you know, how they live from day to day? I mean, is there any concern over that? I'm just sort of wondering, like, what is the mindset of settlers who inhabit these areas now? Well, I mean, this is this is this is a very very well planned, well organized system of erasure, and so anybody growing up as an Israeli, including myself, you know, as I was growing up, in order to know about Palestinians, in order to care enough to know about Palestinians, you have to make a huge effort. You have to have, make an enormous effort because it doesn't exist. I'll give you an example. I went with a friend uh, to uh, take some pictures in a Palestinian, a, a, a quite, you know, quite large Palestinian village that was destroyed in 1967. 
called Yalo. It's a long story. It's a very interesting story, very interesting village. A friend of mine has family who's from there. So it's a beautiful, beautiful ride. It overlooks the valley. It's gorgeous. And then when you stand at the top of the hill there, where this village used to sit, and now there's nothing, you know. There are signs that show you, that describe the landscape. And when you read these signs, there's not a single mention of any Palestinian uh, town, any Palestinian village, any, any Palestinian existence at all. Even though in the far distance, you still see, even you can see a couple of towns that are still there. In fact, it's such a beautiful overlook, you see all the way to the West Bank. Now, by the way, all of this entire story, this entire article, is not discussing the West Bank. This is discussing what's considered as, by some people as kind of, you know, the legitimate Israel, the pre-67 Israel without the West Bank. Uh, but you look and you don't see a single mention of a Palestinian town. And that entire area was full of Palestinian villages and Palestinian towns. And like I said, you can st- still see some of them in the distance. The sign describes what you see, describes all these biblical lands that are supposedly mentioned in the Bible that may or may not be accurate geographically and historically. And nothing at all. So in other words, if you go hiking, and it's a beautiful place to hike, You'll bump into some rocks. You'll see a cemetery with some, you know, broken, uh, broken tombstones. You'll notice that there might have been something there, but the assumption it was, I don't know, some Roman ruins or something. Um, and then as you look into the valley, all that is described are Hebrew names, Hebrew locations, not a single. So even if you wanted to know, you couldn't because it's not available. It's not, it's not described. Nobody knows that this was this particular place was a village of some 3,000 people. It's a rather la- large and very wealthy, used to be a very wealthy village uh, or small town. You wouldn't know. There was no way that you would know this, even if you cared. So Israeli consciousness is built on, you know, what's possible to know. And in order to know these things, like I said, the effort you have to make is enormous, and, and most people will not make that kind of an effort, especially when it talks about something that's uncomfortable to know anyway. Certainly. And, you know, I got to say, Miko, this what you're describing in terms of like, you know, these beautiful uh, beachfront uh, towns and things like this with people uh, luxuriating on the beach. I mean, it sounds like a whole other world from, you know, uh, what's experienced by Palestinian people, not only on a day to day basis, but even uh, most recently, like with this uh, most recent attack on Gaza, which uh, was particularly um, impactful on young kids. I mean, I'm looking at uh, a piece from earlier this month from Al Jazeera that was reporting that uh, at least 45 Palestinians were killed in that attack, including 16 children. And I don't know if the numbers may have gone up since that time. But I mean, I can't imagine uh, uh, not only what that's like just as a community going through that, but even when you talk about the uh, uh, parents of these young children that have to deal with the fallout from this. And I tend to think that uh, the issue of this reverberating on children is not a new thing in Palestine. And you recently uh, wrote a piece on uh, Mint Press about uh, this as well. And so, I mean, how do you compare and contrast just these two starkly, gravely a different kind of experiences like what we see in, in these resort areas and the experience of Palestinians who are still grappling with uh, uh, of the fallout from these most recent attacks? You know, they're, they're, it's really hard to describe. I mean, it's a very small country, and the the, uh, the segregation is so effective. And another good example is the city of Tel Aviv, which is, you know, this wonderful, fun beach city, 
um, which is, I don't know, 30 miles from Gaza. You can see when they bomb Gaza, you can see the smoke from Tel Aviv beaches. And um, that nobody, not even for a second, stops going to the beaches, stops going to the bars, to the restaurants in Tel Aviv when they bomb Gaza. There are even beaches closer to Gaza that Israelis uh, visit regularly. And you can hear and see the bombing of Gaza very clearly. People don't even pause their life. They don't pause. The, the segregation is so complete that it's, it, to say that these are two separate worlds doesn't even begin to describe it. You have to see it to believe it. That's why I encourage people to visit Palestine. You have to see the segregation. You have to see these two different worlds literally side by side, literally quite across the street from each other sometimes to believe just how deep a segregation. These are two separate worlds. You know, one side, the Israeli side, it's a modern Mediterranean uh, country. It's got beaches, it's got big cities, it's got luxury, it's got some poverty. You know, I mean, it's like a normal, you would think, if you didn't know, kind of just a normal modern Mediterranean uh, country or state. Um, and if you didn't make the effort that's required in order to see what this was built upon, to see the people who are not permitted to enjoy this, you know, this very, very fun uh, Mediterranean lifestyle, if you didn't know and weren't willing to make a huge effort, you would never know. That's why so many people visit what they call Israel on tours, on, you know, just for fun, uh, with their church groups, and have no clue, have no idea. You know, people will say to me, why do you, talk, why do you keep talking about the Palestinians? Look, we saw Palestinians and they were fine. You know, it's like saying, well, America had a black president. You know, I mean, why are you talking about why are black people in America still, you know, complaining? It's that kind of an attitude, except that over there, the country is very small. And the two communities need very geographically very close to each other. And yet the segregation is so absolutely effective that you can be on one side and not even realize what it's like on the other side. Absolutely. And, you know, I wanted to bring it back to uh, uh, the United States real quick, if we could, as, of course, the main uh, funder and supporter of Israel and uh, uh, even a recent piece of uh, legislation, a bill that was proposed by Representative Betty McCollum, uh, known as the Defending the Human Rights of Palestinian and Families Living Under Israeli Military Occupation Act, otherwise known as H.R. 2590, that, to my knowledge, has basically gotten no support. And I think it's just a reflection of how uh, deeply tied uh, 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 Israel is uh, in the U.S. government. Some people see it as a wagging the dog thing, but but in reality, at least from my perspective, you know, the U.S. Uh, sort of needs Israel um, as a kind of outpost for its interests in the Middle East. And so, I mean, uh, what do you think we can infer from this sort of deep lack of support from something as simple as defending children against military aggression, which one would think would be kind of a no-brainer to support? You know, I'm really glad you brought that up. I'm really, really glad you brought that up because I met with several people, several parents, and, um, and I'll give you I'll give you a couple of examples real quick. One, I, I just ran after joining two Palestinians, citizens of the state of Israel. They were arrested when they, I saw when I met them just a few couple of weeks ago. They're 32 years old. They had just been released after 20 years in prison. They were 32 years old. They were just released a couple of weeks before I saw them. After being held, you know, they were, they, were, they were given 20 years in jail at 12 years old. 
Now, these are Palestinian citizens of Israel, not even West Bank or, or, or Gaza. Um, then I met with a couple of parents, um, one mother who was just talking about knowing that her two children are being interrogated by the Israelis for close to a month, uh, and she knowing full well they're being tortured. One of her kids was taken to the hospital twice during the interrogation, and she was not allowed to visit them. Of course, the interrogations take place without the presence of a parent or the presence of a lawyer. And she knew that her child was beaten so badly he was taken to the hospital twice during the interrogation, and she was not permitted to visit. Another story, uh, and I interviewed this mother and another, you know, parents of Ahmed Banasra, a case that's quite well known now, at least in our circles, uh, a boy who was, who was arrested at 13, he's now 20 years old, he's, he's mentally... His mental health health is, is, is been has been compromised to a point where there's real fear for his life. They put him in uh, in isolation for many, many, many months. The courts, the nobody human rights organizations, you know, the parents tried everything and there's nobody to talk to. There's nobody, nobody. So what I'm hoping to do is take these two interviews of these two sets of parents and then perhaps uh, get a get an interview with uh, Representative McCollum and put together uh, some kind of a promotion as we approach the midterm elections, telling people, demand, demand, demand that your elected officials support this bill. Like you said, it's about children. It shouldn't matter if it's uh, Israel, Palestine, if it's Democrat or Republican. This is the, We're talking about children being tortured. We're talking about parents who don't know you know, in the case of Ahmed Ben he was in the hospital for a month after he was run over and beaten badly uh, by Israelis. And then he was held in an institution for another month. It was two months before they could meet him, and they only allow like a 45-minute visit once a month. I mean, the torture, the torture, the, the punitive, the way they treat these children is absolutely outrageous. And like you said, this bill, which should be, should be you know, overwhel- have overwhelming support, can barely get enough uh, enough co-sponsors to be presented. So this is precisely the battle that we have to fight. This is precisely the kind of thing that we need to keep uh, keep fighting for, keep harping on here in the United States, because $3.8 billion goes to Israel to do this. $3.8 billion of our tax money goes to Israel to oppress, to kill, to incarcerate, and to torture Palestinians. This is precisely why we need to get on top of this, and we need to be a lot more serious than we are in demanding that our elected officials stop supporting Israel. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Miko, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, August 29th, 2022. 
And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to hit us up at 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also hit us up on twitter.com at BAM Necessary. Check out the show at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also hear the show and download at sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. But wherever you are in this world, we most certainly want to hear from you. We most certainly do, And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Dr. Gerald Horn, Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston and the author of dozens of books, including The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Dr. Horn, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And uh, Dr. Horn, of course, here recently, uh, uh, it's been reported that the FBI found uh, 184 classified documents in boxes that were returned by uh, former President Donald J. Trump. Of course, there was uh, quite a stir around the recent uh, FBI raid of his uh, Mar-a-Lago home. And this was a uh, 36 page affidavit that was submitted. Of course, it was made public, I believe, late last week, heavily redacted. And uh, according to reports, agents found 184 unique documents um, with different classification markings, including 25 documents marked as top secret, 67 documents marked as confidential, and 92 that were marked as secret. And I'm just sort of generally curious uh, your, your your thoughts about this, Dr. Horn, and what do you think it means for Trump? What does it mean for uh, the Democrats, uh, certainly as we move closer towards um, midterms uh, here in the U.S.? And just really, what do you think uh, this all means in terms of the kind of broader political moment we find ourselves in here in the United States? Well, the question we're still not able to answer is why did Mr. Trump want all of these documents at his Florida state in the first instance? Here we can only speculate, but we can speculate based upon a firm knowledge of Mr. Trump's past practices. For example, we know that one of the documents was a dossier on French President Macron. Now, one can speculate that perhaps uh, this was some dirt dug up on Mr. Macron. There has been a lot of gossip about Mr. Macron's personal life. Recall uh, that uh, his spouse is decades older than he is, for what that's worth. He apparently began to court her when she was his teacher in high school. There has been speculation about that relationship ever since. And it's possible that Mr. Macron wanted to blackmail Mr. Excuse me, Mr. Trump wanted to blackmail Mr. Macron, particularly because recall in one of their early meetings, Mr. Macron embarrassed Mr. Trump by embracing his hand in a handshake and then engaging in this sort of macho mano a mano stare down in which Mr. Trump came up second best, and apparently uh, that is something that Mr. Trump 
has yet to forget. And then we can also speculate about all of these top secret documents. Perhaps Mr. Trump, as has been his past habit, wanted to, as they say, monetize these documents. Uh, perhaps a failed plan to uh, Saudi Arabia, which, after all, uh, was one of the first places he visited as a U.S. president, that after he left the White House, the Saudis gifted about $2 billion to his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, to play with in terms of investing on the Saudis' behalf. And, of course, this also raises certain questions about the United States itself, which I'm afraid to say have not necessarily been engaged by pundits or analysts on the left, which is how and why it is that he continues to maintain a base of tens of millions of voters. This is something that merits a deep interrogation and excavation. But basically, uh, that kind of interrogation and excavation has escaped of many of our analysts on the left. Now, the question remains, uh, will he be indicted? Uh, Once again, one of the fears is that if he is indicted, that his 74, 75 million strong base will take it to the streets. Recall that just a few days ago, uh, a Trumpista who was at January 6, 2021, assault on Capitol Hill, uh, had a shootout with agents of the FBI in Cincinnati and came out second best. Uh, There have been all sorts of threats (laughs) to the National Archives, believe it or not, because they're being accused of being complicit in this alleged campaign targeting uh, Mr. Trump. So the United States, uh, speaking objectively, feels it finds itself in in a real pickle. Uh, On the one hand, there is this now threat-bearer rhetoric about the United States supposedly being this citadel and fortress of democracy, On the other hand, you have this uh, miscreant, Mr. Trump, who the authorities are afraid to indict because they fear that masses of people might rise up in this defense. What kind of democracy is this? Yeah, and that really is the question, Dr. Horney. And you're really hitting on how uh, uh, so much of this, I think, um, evidences the real political crisis that has been raging uh, inside the United States, certainly for some time, but uh, that I think has, you know, been accelerated with uh, the advent of Donald Trump and um, the role that the liberals and the Democrats played uh, in his rise. And certainly uh, with the uh, coronavirus pandemic, heaping even more contradictions uh, upon uh, a capitalist system that was already in crisis as well. And even within that, I feel like there were a couple of different narratives that kind of emerged following um, the raid on Trump's uh, uh, Mar-a-Lago estate there. And of course, you know, the first that we saw uh, from reactionaries like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who almost hilariously called for the defunding of the FBI. So now all of a sudden, you know, right wingers have an issue with the intelligence community when, when it's aimed against them as if they would not weaponize it in that very way against uh, uh, actual left wing elements, as I think history has shown in a number of ways. And even certain people nominally on the left in the U.S. saying that basically we should, uh, you know, condemn the FBI for raiding Trump as as, as somehow there will be implications for us. I mean, for me, I feel like it sort of shows 
sort of a real uh, uh, conflict and contradiction that are happening amongst certain levels of the U.S. ruling class. And uh, I think that that is why we're, we're really seeing um, some of these dynamics that you're describing, Doctor, are really sort of emanating from this as, you know, it almost feels like uh, like a, a death struggle that um, uh, the Democrats and Republicans are in at this point to see who can plunge this country into oblivion the fastest. But without editorializing too much, I'm just wondering how you sort of see sort of the real class and political character of uh, uh, what's happening in this moment and how it seems to be exacerbating the crisis in this country instead of uh, alleviating it. Well, I find it hard to believe, I must have missed this, that some of our, quote, friends, unquote, on the left have suggested that we should come to the defense of Mr. Trump in light of this FBI raid. I, I don't know how to respond to that. I mean, obviously, the U.S. ruling class and their acolytes have shown over the decades that they draw careful and close distinctions. They don't mind saying, sick the FBI on the left and don't necessarily sick it on the right. And so to think that if we come to the defense of Mr. Trump, this will give us a pass in, in the near future. Uh, I mean, I'd like to have some of what they're smoking. But I think, ironically, what this crisis in the ruling class helps to underscore quite dangerously is that they have a certain kind of unity on certain other points, which are quite frightening. I'm speaking of the People's Republic of China. There are a few issues that unite the various wings of the U.S. ruling elite beyond confrontation with China. The only question is, should the confrontation take place sooner rather than later? You saw that with regard to Speaker Pelosi's uh, ill-fated journey to Taiwan just a few weeks ago. You see that with U.S. battleships sailing through the Taiwan Straits as we speak. You see that with regard to uh, Senator Blackburn of Tennessee, a rock rib Republican, uh, mirroring uh, Speaker Pelosi by visiting Taiwan just a few days ago. And it's really remarkable that even though the United States is bogged down with regard to this conflict in the Ukraine, which, by the way, is leading to quite a bit of distress in the so-called allies of Western Europe. You might have seen the speech by President Macron of France, where he said that the French people not necessarily the French ruling class, would have to get used to the end of an era of abundance. Uh, I guess he's referring to the fact that across the channel in Britain, energy prices to heat homes are scheduled to go up by 80%. Uh, you see that in terms of the fact that in neighboring Germany, uh, there is advice from on high about showering together about other kinds of ridiculous modes and methods of seeking to reduce energy. And so despite the fact that you have these challenges, shall we say euphemistically abroad, there is still this laser-like focus on China. It reminds me of the perhaps uh, apocryphal French general who was cited for the proposition that, of saying that my left flank is collapsing my right flank is retreating, situation, excellent, attack. That seems to be the ethos right now in Washington. 
Yeah, and, you know, you did miss that uh, discourse, Dr. Horn, but that's because, you know, a lot of it was happening online, and a scholar of your stature has far better things to do. And, uh, you know, in reality, it connects uh, quickly, uh, you know, to this notion that somehow those of us on the left need to, like, be actively trying to organize amongst, like, you know, racist white workers, which is the sort of thing that people say when, and it makes me question whether they like actually leave their house to organize. But you did move to where I wanted to go next in terms of this issue of uh, China and Taiwan. As you mentioned, uh, a Republican of Tennessee, Marsha Blackburn, uh, was a part of yet another uh, delegation to Taiwan that was, of course, kicked off by uh, U.S. Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. And while in Taiwan and meeting with President Tsai Ing-wen, Blackburn, uh, in her comments, uh, referred to Taiwan as a, quote, independent nation. And on top of that, uh, here recently, two United States Navy warships actually entered um, the Taiwan Straits. And uh, and this is the first time that uh, there's been any kind of U.S. naval transit since Pelosi's visit. And, uh, you know, namely, this is uh, the USS Antietam and the USS Chandler Chandlersville, these are a guided missile cruisers that, quote, went through waters where high seas freedoms of navigation and overflight apply in accordance with international law, according to a statement from the U.S. 7th Fleet in Japan. And so it seems that the U.S. is really just trying to needle uh, Beijing more and more here, uh, Dr. Horn, on a number of levels, just, you know, uh, uh, chipping away, maybe doing more than chipping at the spirit and letter of uh, the one China policy and just being as um, uh, aggressive and uh, provocative as they possibly can. I mean, they seem hell bent on engaging China in uh, open conflict in the same way that they uh, 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 seem to want the same with Russia vis-a-vis Ukraine. And I'm just wondering why you think things are sort of moving in this direction at this juncture, Dr. Horn. I definitely agree with you that um, both ruling class parties, Democrats and Republicans are sort of in lockstep as it pertains to this hyper focus on China. And, you know, how do you see the calculus of that fitting into the broader question of geopolitics in this moment? Well, I think that leading Democrats and leading Republicans, as they peer over the horizon, they see that China is in the passing lane. That has led simultaneously and ironically to a lot of downgrading of China of late, uh, talking about how China faces a demographic trap whereby the end of the century, uh, its population, according to these uh, would-be demographers, China's population might be two-thirds or half of the 1.4 billion that it is today. Uh, There is talk about China's growth rates uh, hitting the ceiling, about uh, how uh, President Xi Jinping per this upcoming uh, party congress in a few months, is becoming, uh, quote, autocratic, unquote, if he is not already. Complaints about the so-called cyber attacks uh, emanating from China, uh, complaining about so-called wolf warrior diplomacy uh, by Chinese diplomats, complaining about the Chinese role in Africa, which, by the way, I'm afraid to say has been uh, eight I'm afraid to say, by uh, some of our friends on this side of the Atlantic. And I think that as they look in their crystal ball, the U.S. ruling class may be arriving at the conclusion that they still have a military advantage over China, although the economic and financial advantage is dissipating, 
And so it may be time for a riverboat gamble. That is to say, a all-out confrontation with China, despite the fact that saner and sober voices like Ram Allison of Harvard and the defense hawkish intellectual Elbridge Colby, recall his book, A Strategy of Denial, which is quite hawkish with regard to China, although he's counseling against any immediate confrontation, as has Graham Allison. But caution is being tossed to the winds. And I would also like to remind you that uh, during the Trump regime, you had the director of policy planning at the State Department, a Madam Karan Skinner, uh, who happens to be, for what it's worth, a black woman, uh, who cautioned and warned that this confrontation with China not only uh, brings onto the table the question of whether U.S. imperialist hegemony will continue through this century, but she played the race card, believe it or not. Uh, She says that, uh, she intimated, I should say, uh, that uh, there was a question about the future viability of white supremacy uh, if China remains in the passing lane. So this is a very fraught moment. It's a very dangerous moment. It's the time for an active peace movement in this country, and I await the rising and the sympathy of this peace movement with bated breath. Certainly. And I think this notion of uh, <clears throat> a declining white supremacist power with China on the rise, I think that that sort of illuminates uh, a lot about uh, the motivation here and how uh, central uh, white supremacy is to the spread of imperialism, of course, capitalism at its very highest level. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open to 0252-11320. That's two. 02521-1320. I continue to be joined by Dr. Gerald Horn. And Dr. Horn, I want to switch our focus uh, from the United States to the continent of Africa here, landing first in Angola, where there are some uh, disagreements and some controversy around the uh, results of a recent vote that saw a victory of Joao Lourenço, if I'm saying that correctly. Um, that would mean another five-year term for him. And uh, according to a piece here in the Wall Street Journal, uh, with 97 percent of balance counted, uh, the Popular Movement for the Liberation of Angola, or MPLA, has won 51 percent of the vote in the elections. The Opposition National Union for uh, the Total Independence of Angola, or UNITA, winning 44 percent, according to their commission. Now, as results uh, began to come in uh, throughout those days, uh, UNITA officials uh, continued 
tested those numbers and said that their parallel count actually pointed to the victory of the opposition. And the leader of UNITA, uh, Aldalberto Costa Jr., has said, quote, don't let them steal our hope. And so uh, what do you think is happening here regarding this most recent uh, election in Angola, uh, uh, Dr. Horn? And what are some of the context within that country that you think would help clarify some of what we're seeing? Well, the context immediately is the sense that whether they know it or not, a substantial percentage of black Americans are actually of Angolan descent, because during the battle days of the African slave trade, uh, Angola in Southwest Africa was plundered and looted by U.S. enslavers. It's no accident that a major state prison in Louisiana is called Angola State Prison. That is to say, there was this tragic irony of Africans being dragged across the Atlantic and then wind up in a prison called Angola after leaving a country called Angola. And then let's pick up the story in 1975, when Angola soars to independence under the leadership of today's apparent victor in the election, speaking of the MPLA. Recall that this was very tumultuous, this escape from the snares of Portuguese colonialism, because the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency had colluded with the apartheid authorities in South Africa to launch an invasion in 1975 to prevent the MPLA, the leading and ruling Angolan party, from coming to power. It was only the intervention of uh, Cuban troops under President Fidel Castro Ruz uh, that helped to save the day. Uh, but alas, what happened is that the United States uh, found a placement in terms of their favorite African puppet, speaking of the leader and founder of the Unita Party, uh, Jonas Avembe, who was in the Oval Office with Ronald Wilson Reagan uh, more than once between 1980 and Mr. Reagan leaving office in 1989. And it was only a few decades ago that you could fairly say that the war that the United States was waging against Angola began to recede when you saw the murder on the battlefield of Jonas Avembe, the founder of UNITA, and of course, as noted, uh, Mr. Reagan's uh, favorite African puppet. puppet. But alas, what happened is that the Soviet Union collapsed, as you know, in 1991, and that disfavored the attempt of many African nations to move towards the socialist option, which the MPLA said it was sworn to do. And fundamentally, the policy of Washington with the collapse of the Soviet Union was that any nation that did not move towards privatization, that is to say, turning over state enterprises to individuals, were depriving these individuals of democratic rights, which meant that they were worthy, the governments were worthy of being overthrown. And so, like uh, other countries around the world, which I will not mention, the MPLA decided that the better part of wisdom was to move towards privatization, particularly of their fabulous oil wealth, uh, to the point where perhaps the second richest woman of African descent in the world today is the daughter of the late leader of Angola, speaking of the late leader, Dos Santos, who just perished a few weeks ago in exile in Spain. And so what's happening is that Angola, under the MPLA, has not been able to redistribute the wealth widely because of this mania towards privatization that meant that their majority in this election shrank to a mere 51%, with UNITA climbing 
in the polls. You need to probably uh, is the most popular party in the capital of Angola, which is Luanda. And that means that Angola, in many ways, is a microcosm of what's happening on the African continent today. Yeah, and I kind of had a similar feeling, particularly in terms of the issue of oil and uh, these other natural resources that uh, Africa is so painfully uh, exploited by, of course, with its people not being able to reap the benefits of uh, uh, how those resources are used. And I mean, in general, if I was wondering if you think, uh, Dr. Horn, if uh, what we're seeing in Angola sort of has any reverberations uh, on that region of uh, uh, the continent. And sort of how things are operating in that way. I mean, you know, I maintain that uh, Africa will, you know, sort of uh, prove itself to be an important battleground uh, for the new Cold War. And I'm not saying that as a clairvoyant. I'm saying that with the understanding um, of some of that history that you just laid out and uh, uh, how Africa has been situated within geopolitics for quite some time. I mean, literally centuries. And so, I mean, from a regional standpoint, do you think that there are any um, ripple effects from what we're seeing in Angola? Well, clearly, I mean, Washington has not forgotten, although many people in our movement apparently have forgotten, that the liberation movements, which soared to independence with so much optimism of some years ago, oftentimes are still the ruling parties today. And as noted, they have been flummoxed by the global movement away from socialism and towards neoliberalism and the rule of the market. However, due east in Zimbabwe, you saw that the former liberation movement, ZANU-PF, uh, under the leadership of now late leader Robert Mugabe, moved to redistribute the land uh, from the European invaders and the European colonizers, and that led to a sanctions regime against this country that is still in place but the Zanopiaf is still holding on. Uh, I dare say that uh, what happened in Angola also is of significance for their neighbor to the south, speaking of Namibia, where the former liberation movement, now the ruling party SWAPO, is in contestation with Germany because Germany, uh, under the leadership of these precursors of Nazis at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, committed a brutal genocide against the Nama, Herrero, and Obambo people. And the Swapo government is seeking reparations, uh, which has not been greeted with equanimity in Berlin, has not been greeted with equanimity in Washington, because it's feared that that may set a president that will be of significance to people of African descent on these shores. And then there is the wider question, which is that, as noted, the Western European allies of the United States are really going through a very difficult moment right now. It may be an epical moment. It may be a moment of inflection, uh, signaling their precipitous decline into a kind of irrelevance and certainly not the catbird seat that they've been occupying for centuries. And so as a result of their boycott of Russian natural resources, Russian oil, for example, you see that they're turning to Angolan oil and Nigerian oil. And, of course, Mr. Macron of France is in Algeria today uh, dickering for Algerian oil and natural gas. And the same holds true for other resources, too. 
where they're boycotting Russia and now turning towards Africa. Now, what that means will be added scrutiny on these African governments, uh, added interference in their internal affairs, despite protestations to the contrary, by visiting U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, uh, who toured South Africa, Democratic Republic, Republic of the Congo, and Rwanda just a few weeks ago. Uh, but I don't think you should take his words of non-interference quite seriously, particularly in light of the fact that his comrades, speaking of U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who happens to be a black woman, had toured Africa just a few days before Mr. Blinken and was singing from a different hymn book, uh, sounding the changes with regard to uh, keeping away from the big bad Russians and the big bad Chinese. And then that does not even get into the growing conflict between the North Atlantic countries and their erstwhile allies, speaking of Turkey, which now wants to be known as Turkey, which not only, according to Washington, is double-dealing by uh, having these uh, fruitful economic relations with Moscow, but also has interests in Africa as well, and that Washington sees as inimical to its own imperial project. Yeah, and I was hoping we could say more about uh, Emmanuel Macron of France's uh, recent visit to Algeria, where he met with uh, President Abdelmajid Taboun and declared a, quote, new irreversible dynamic of progress in relationship between the two countries. Of course, France, the former colonial power over uh, uh, Algeria. And I feel like there's a number of things that are uh, uh, happening vis-a-vis the African continent as it regards that. To your point, Dr. Horn, in terms of the presence of Russia, the presence of China, all these sorts of things. I can't help but think about how, you know, the people of Mali recently booted uh, French troops uh, from the country. But uh, I'm just sort of wondering, what what do you think is sort of the the deeper meaning or really the motivations of France in this so-called new pact uh, with Algeria? Well, I think the motivation is clear. Uh, That is to say that Nigeria, excuse me, Algeria has natural gas, it has petroleum, a significant percentage of French nationals on French soil happen to be of Algerian descent, a token of the French colonialism that occupied the North African country from about 1830 to 1962, relations between independent Algeria and France and its ally in Washington have been fraught since 1962. Recall that the early leader of Algeria, Ahmed Ben Bella, not only uh, met with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, in the early stages of his uh, regime, but also pledged solidarity uh, with black Americans, uh, which was then exemplified when the Black Panther Party opened a embassy, if you like, uh, in Algiers, and then began to welcome uh, so-called plane hijackers would land at Algeria seeking freedom, oftentimes with thousands of dollars in tow, although admittedly sometimes that cash was confiscated by the Algerian authorities. We also know that uh, independent Algeria and even wartime Algeria in the 1950s inspired folks from the Caribbean, including uh, Franz Fadon, the Martinique writer, intellectual, and psychiatrist who threw in his lot with the fighters for freedom uh, in Algeria, who became an emissary of the Algerian authorities, uh, who wrote a book, The Wretched of the Earth, which is still consulted uh, by folks in our movement, 
even today and was an inspiration once again for the Black Panther Party. And so even though there might be people on this side of the Atlantic who have forgotten that encapsulated history I just outlined, I don't think France has, I don't think Washington has, I don't think Algeria has. And so Algeria, in some ways, is in an advantageous position. It has positive relations with Russia. It doesn't plan on being used against Russia, that is to say, by allowing France to bargain down Algeria's price for natural gas so that France could benefit. Instead, Algeria will bargain up the price of Algerian natural gas, which is one of the reasons why Western Europe is in such a crisis now, because Western European nations have gotten, have gotten too accustomed to plunder of Africa. They're not accustomed to dealing with a sovereign and independent Africa backed up by comrades in Moscow and Beijing. And so as a result, you have this spectacle, uh, even with regard to Russia, of the United States, obviously seeking to undermine Russia, if not overthrow the regime, but yet claiming and complaining that Russia is engaging in blackmail because it wants to be paid in rubles for its exports of natural gas and oil. I mean, this is obviously the complaint of countries and nations that are too accustomed to the master-slave relationship and are not accustomed to dealing with strong and sovereign independent nations, and Algeria not least. Definitely. And while we're uh, talking some about elections on the African continent, I also wanted to raise uh, what's been happening in Kenya with uh, opposition figure Raila Odinga, who is contesting uh, his loss in that country's recent presidential election, but uh, is saying that he will uh, respect the court's ruling as he's taken it to the Supreme Court, even though he still believes uh, that he won. Now, I believe this is uh, Raila Odinga's fifth time uh, uh, running for president of Kenya. And in the past, he's uh, blamed uh, losing elections on uh, rigging, things like that, which, you know, at different points sparked a protest in Kenya that uh, led to some people being killed. And so uh, what do you think is happening with uh, uh, this election uh, recently in Kenya, uh, Dr. Horn, as it pertains to um, Odinga and things like this? And uh, what do you think it means for the folks of that country? Well, the alleged purported Victor in this contested election, uh, Mr. William Ruto, uh, had been the vice president under the current president, Uhuru Kenyatta, who happens to be the son of founding father Jomo Kenyatta. But as you probably know, there was some sort of falling out between Ruto and Kenyatta, the details of which I have not been able to ascertain. And that led to Mr. Kenyatta endorsing his erstwhile opponent. Speaking of Ryla Odinga, recall that the Odinga family and the Kenyatta family were at each other's throats in the run-up to independence of Kenya in 1963. So when Mr. Kenyatta endorsed uh, Ryla Odinga, this was seen as quite a turnabout, which it actually was. Now, people of the United States should pay careful and close attention uh, to Kenya because there are multiple U.S. interests, quote-unquote, uh, in Kenya, recall that at the inception of British colonialism in Kenya, I'm speaking of the late 19th century, 
one of the ironies of British colonialism is that Britain, which has a contemporary population of about 60 to 65 million, did not necessarily have enough colonialists to patrol its far-flung empire, speaking of today's Pakistan and today's Bangladesh, today's Sri Lanka, not to mention India, uh, Myanmar, Burma, countless countries in Africa, the Caribbean, etc. So they had to rely heavily on Euro-Americans, so-called white Americans, uh, who were present at the creation of British colonialism and whose descendants uh, still play a major role uh, in the Kenyan economy. That Part of this is detailed uh, in my book on the Kenyan struggle for liberation, which you can easily find. So therefore, it's no accident that uh, the first, quote, black president, unquote, of the United States happens to be of Kenyan origin, uh, speaking of Barack Obama. It's no accident that the U.S. uses Kenya as a sort of headquarters for forays throughout the subcontinent in terms of patrolling its vast interests in Uganda, in Sudan, in Ethiopia, in Somalia, as far south as Tanzania, for example. So this is a country that we must be up to speed on. And how this disputed election will play out is unclear, because Mr. Odinga has gone to court. It's now under advisement by the judicial authorities. Uh, there are a number of options. Uh, perhaps there, w- there will be a new election declared. That has been the case in previous instance- instances. Uh, perhaps there will be other options as well. Uh, but let us hope and let us push to ensure that there is no eruption of violence. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Dr. Horn is here as we keep the movement moving on. And, you know, Dr. Horn, quite naturally, we've spoken some today about um, the role of Russia and the role of China in geopolitics and how um, the West is seemingly just uh, completely, completely lost its mind and just all, lost all sort of faculties for uh, a reason as it pertains to those two uh, uh, countries. Uh, I mean, especially. China sort of knocking the U.S. out the box as a, a, a hegemon on the world, the character of which I tend to think would, would be quite different. But there's another country that, that I think is a quite relevant within the calculus of geopolitics here that I wanted to get into in terms of Turkey, of course, under the presidency of uh, Recep Erdogan. And I'm just wondering how you sort of see uh, Turkey factoring in to how we see a uh, sort of global global politics operating in this uh, moment, Dr. Horn, and uh, what you think it could mean on a number of levels? Well, Turkey, or Turkeya, as it now wants to be known, uh, is a major player in the geopolitics of the world, which should 
be a surprise only to those who haven't been paying attention. Uh, for hundreds of years, up until about 1918, that is to say about a century ago, uh, the Ottoman Empire, under Turkey's rule, uh, was a major player. But what happened was that it sided with Germany during World War I, and Germany lost, and Turkey lost, which of course meant it had to relinquish uh, many of its erstwhile colonies. That's the origin, in fact, of the uh, Israel-Palestine dispute, because historic Palestine was a uh, Turkey colony. Uh, Saudi Arabia was under Turkey rule, so was uh, Turkey, uh, etc. Not to mention a good deal of Africa. So what's happening now is that under President Erdogan, Turkey is tired of being a bridesmaid and not a bride when it comes to uh, being accepted into the European Union. It's being a candidate. It's been a candidate member to the EU since 1999. Reference here how Ukraine is being put on the fast track to candidate membership of the European Union. And Turkey has good reason to believe that it's anti-Islamic sentiment. Turkey is a predominantly Muslim country that undergirds this reluctance to accept 82 million Turks into the EU, even though uh, Turkey is supposedly the eastern flank of the uh, U.S.-dominated North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And so now you see Turkey beginning to hedge. Recall that just a few weeks ago, there was an extraordinary four-hour meeting between President Putin and President Erdogan in Sochi, in Russia. Uh, now, if you know your history, you know, going back centuries, relations between Russia and Turkey have not been ideal, to put it mildly. They've crossed swords more than once. And I think it's fair to say that Turkey oftentimes has come out a second best in terms of those confrontations. And so now what you see is that Turkey is seeking to cozy up to Russia, which led to an extraordinary letter from the U.S. Treasury Department to Turkey, warning that country to steer clear of Russian businesses. Otherwise, Turkey will be subjected to secondary sanctions. Uh, this was not greeted with equanimity uh, in Turkey. Uh, in fact, they were outraged. And in fact, you begin to see a glimpse of the outline of a new kind of alliance. You might expect Turkey to join the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. You already see Turkey having a de facto relationship with the Moscow-led Eurasian Economic Union, which includes many of the old Soviet republics, many of whom speak Turkic languages. And those nations, speaking of the Eurasian Economic Union, in turn is yoked to the People's Republic of China, which is very interesting because historically, uh, Turkey has seen itself also as the kind of defender, uh, a kind of defender of Muslims worldwide. That's one of the reasons why when President Erdogan comes to the United States, he oftentimes uh, visits with black American Muslims, including in Maryland. Uh, his opponent, uh, Fatula Gore, who is in self-imposed exile in the Poconos of Pennsylvania. Uh, Mr. Erdogan wants him extradited. The United States refuses, which is 
one of the reasons for the growing bad blood between Ankara and Washington, uh, Fatula Gula, uh, his vast sheriff, have established charter schools in black communities uh, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And so what's remarkable in that context is that Washington has been leaning on Turkeya to join the, excuse the expression, crusade to supposedly, quote, liberate, unquote, uh, Uyghurs, Muslims from Western China, uh, who it is said are being subject to genocide. And thus far, uh, Turkey has turned a cold shoulder uh, to that venture, which is not one many friends and influenced individuals in Washington and in the Pentagon and State Department. So this new rule of role of Turkey is very intriguing, particularly in Africa where if you look at Somalia, which the United States is bombing on a regular basis, I hope they're engaging in a liaison relationship with Turkey, because if you look at Somalia closely, you'll see that that predominantly Muslim country has Turkish fingerprints all over it. They're the power behind the throne. They pick up the garbage. They run the ports. They run the airports. Uh, You see growing Turkish influence throughout any country in Africa, that has a predominantly Muslim population, and that would include uh, Northern Africa, that would include Africa as far south as Senegal, Guinea, Conakry, for example. So uh, this is something that those of us who are serious about politics and trying to figure out the global correlation of forces so that we can more effectively and quicker uh, bring U.S. imperialism to heel we have to study the growing and influential role of Ankara, speaking of Turkey. Definitely. We've got a caller on the line here. Keith, tell us what's on your mind. A great show, guys. Um, again, Dr. Horn, uh, I appreciate you all taking my call. I have uh, been to Africa many times, and I haven't been recently, but the word I'm getting back from people who are African is that they don't really like the Chinese. And I've talked about this before. And I can't understand how they take this position. And it's always better when the British ran the train system. Now that the Chinese have it, they'll only hire their own people and they don't really have any interest. They're here to rip us off like everybody else. But then you look at Mosifany, whose son went to school at a military academy in the U.S. They're all being groomed by the West. The French have their base in Mali and that's to ensure they can continue doing what they couldn't do before the country was liberated. So I'm just trying to unpack all this. And then this saying from uh, Xi Jinping, which was, he who plays with fire will die from fire. That's to say, keep screwing around in the South China Sea when we do our war games, and somebody's going to take out, I'm going to take somebody out here. So they they had to back out the aircraft carrier. Why do they keep playing chicken when the the odds are not during the Kennedy era where, hey, it'll just be two countries that might go out. The whole planet will be devastated. The atomic bulletin of scientists, you know, a clock, doomsday clock, it's one. It's about two minutes to 12, the closest it's ever been. So where are the adults in the room in the U.S. government? And secondly, is China just a, another imperialist? Because I don't believe they are. So can you uh, uh, touch on that, Dr. Um, please? I mean, Professor. Well, thank you, Keith. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Dr. Horn, your thoughts? One's viewpoint of China and Africa oftentimes depends on what part of Africa you're talking about. That's point number one. Uh, Point number two is that if you look at the Chinese role in Africa, 
which Washington sees as so problematic. And I'm afraid to say that oftentimes you see uh, folks in the United States, even black people, echoing State Department talking points. Recall what I said about Angola, 1975, when the U.S. CIA and apartheid South Africa intervened to stop the MPLA from uh, maintaining power. Uh, what I detailed at length in my book on that subject, and I should have mentioned in detail today, is that you had many black Americans who were on the same side as Ronald Wilson Reagan. Although, of course, they didn't say this because we believe in white supremacy. Oftentimes, it, it came with uh, assaults on the Cuban troops and their Soviet backers. And so what's happening today with regard to China and Africa, in a sense, is just a replay of what happened in 1975. Uh, what has gone on, I'm afraid to say, historically, uh, where black Americans uh, find themselves with a kind of voice called a double consciousness. It might be called a two-faced consciousness, where on the one hand, they're African, turning their faces towards Africa. On the other hand, they're, quote, American, unquote, turning their faces towards Washington. And that leads to a kind of hypocrisy and schizophrenia. In any case, if you look at the Chinese role, it's predominantly building infrastructure, building trains from Nairobi to Mombasa, uh, building trains from uh, Addis Ababa to Djibouti uh, on the coast, uh, helping to build a new capital in Zimbabwe, helping to build a new capital in Egypt. Um, now, if we had had the imperialists building infrastructure as opposed to just plundering minerals and resources, which has been their tendency, uh, Africa would be much more advanced today uh, than it actually is. And so it's a very complicated question because you referenced what I said a moment or two ago where the United States said with the eclipse of the Soviet Union that the whole world had to privatize. The whole world had to move away from state control of the economy. Uh, otherwise, you'd be subject to being overthrown. And that also affected and afflicted China, which has a sizable uh, private sector. Uh, think of Huawei, for example. Think, think of BYD. If the United States allows the leading electric vehicle manufacturer uh, in the world, or at least in the United States, will be BYD, which Warren Buffett, the U.S. billionaire, has a major interest in. And so given the fact that there are private interests in China, and given the fact that private interests, capitalist interests, tend to engage in rapacious behavior, it should be no accident that private interests from China oftentimes engage in rapacious behavior in Africa. But fortunately, in the driver's seat in Beijing are not private interests. It's the state. It's the public sector. And they're also in the driver's seat when it comes to dealings with the African continent. Yeah. And, you know, you've mentioned about um, sort of the aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, uh, Dr. Horn. And, you know, uh, following that period, there was this uh, triumphalism that the U.S. Uh, was engaged in in declaring the end of history and all those sorts of things. And it's just pretty wild to see things go from that. You fast forward about 30 or so years to where we all now and uh, the U.S. is, as we often say here on the show, sort of acting like a cornered animal, striking out uh, at other countries who uh, uh, 
uh, seem positioned to surpass it. And so it really just seems like the, you know, fundamental inability of uh, the U.S. government, really the U.S. capitalist state, to really uh, uh, reconcile uh, itself to a lot of these things, while also basically ignoring many of the most pressing contradictions that are happening uh, within its own borders. In a way, it almost seems like it it kind of was uh, uh, digging its own grave in that way, if I could use that imagery. And of course, we know that um, all empires are, are bound to fail, and it seems that the more the U.S. tries to hold on to its position as the world hegemon, the more its grip slips. Well, obviously you're correct. And just before I came on air, uh, and as background noise, I had uh, on a debate that was taking place between H.R. McMaster, the former national security advisor under Mr. Trump, a former Pentagon general, now a fellow at the neoconservative Hoover Institute in Palo Alto, California. Uh, he was debating a fellow neoconservative, Neil Ferguson, uh, whose roots are in Scotland, UK. And what's interesting is that Ferguson was saying, with regard to confrontation with China, he was saying, you know what? The United States is not ready for this confrontation. Uh, if you look at the war games, the tabletop exercises between the U.S. military and the Chinese military, the Chinese have won uh, every episode that the United States has these pressing domestic problems with regard to higher education, with regard to health care. Perhaps the United States should address that. And in any case, don't forget H.R. McMaster, that the United States record with regard to conflict in Asia has not been uh, worthy of emulation. If you think of Vietnam, if you think of Korea, if you think of Afghanistan, just to name a few. Uh, but H.R. McMaster was not hearing it. <laughs> this guy was ready to parachute into Beijing and go mano a mano with Xi Jinping if he could get within a foot of him. And so I'm afraid to say that H.R. McMaster probably represents a consensus amongst not only the Pentagon command, but also the U.S. ruling class as a whole and that does not bode well for the future of this small planet. Yeah, I think that's the case. I think that's the case. This kind of uh, swaggering machismo uh, and militarism that still seems to motivate so much of the uh, uh, U.S. joie de vivre as it pertains to um, international dealings, even if the implications of that are, you know, catastrophic for humanity. I mean, I actually don't think it's an exaggeration to put it quite that way. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> And what that reminds me of, Dr. Horn, is what you just mentioned a moment ago. And that is the need for a mass peace movement, a mass anti-war, anti-imperialist movement that is really going to uh, not only ring the alarm about these issues, but actually organized for a real solution. And particularly when we note how uh, uh, imperialism itself arises out of the contradictions of capitalism, as ever, it will be that capitalist system itself that a movement will need to address itself to if we're going to see the revolution of these and so many other pressing issues.
This is what I mean when I talk about the contradictions that are happening within the borders of the U.S. economically, socially, politically, all these different intertwined problems as the people in this country continue to see their conditions deteriorate. And while their government seems completely uninterested in helping them, but really quite interested in fueling and funding any number of endless wars happening all around this earth. So as I have said before, it is up to this movement to pull humanity back from the brink of oblivion, to pull it from the jaws of destruction, which this ruling class seems intent on pushing it into. And I just think we have to be clear that that is, in fact, our task. And if that sounds like a large and difficult task, it's because it is. And if it was easy, we would not call it struggle. And this is why it's so important that we continue to organize, continue to study and move forward. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Dr. Gerald Horn, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.